on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. So, Scott, what are we doing today? <laughs> well, we're on The Jason Wright Show today. <laughs> All right. Hey folks, guess what? I have a new book coming out. It's called The Stone Chiseler. This is a parable about young Giovanni Cristiani, and it is inspired by Viktor Frankl's masterpiece, Man's Search for Meaning. In this book, young Giovanni finds himself in the most dire of circumstances. However, it is during this time that he finds out who he truly is, and he proves that even in the most awful and horrific of circumstances, having lost seemingly everything that mattered to him, his life still had meaning and purpose. Here's just another little sampling of the Stone Chiseler. Each prisoner upon entering the Stoneyard facility is told he is now a chiseler. Whoever and whatever they were before entering its gates need be forgotten. They had now assumed the identity of the chiseler. With that, they marched together to a holding cell. It was here that the boy met the yardmaster for the first time. He came to the boy and gritted his teeth and said, Well, well, we have a pretty one here, don't we? The boy was, in fact, handsome, like his father. He had a full head of hair, bronzed skin, and a taut physique. He stood a full inch taller than the yardmaster. The yardmaster was known to possess a raging jealousy of anyone taller than him, which was almost everyone. As was the case with all the men, he shaved the boy's head. He then shaved off whatever hair remained on the boy's body. This was not a matter of hygiene. It was meant to further reiterate the stripping of all that the prisoners were before they entered the stone yard. They were literally stripped down to nothing. Not even their names remained. You will no longer be called by your Christian name. You will be identified by either the stone chiseler or the crime for which you have been sent here. Each one of you is nothing more than a stone chiseler. The Stone Chiseler, now available for pre-order at Amazon.com. I do hope you'll check it out. Now, enjoy the show. All right. Well, good morning. All right. I've got to start this off like I told y'all. So, so here we go. And keeping with shoemaker social media, you know, tradition. So, Scott, what are we doing today? Well, we're on the Jason Wright show today. <laughs> All right. Well, this is going to be a lot less work, hopefully, than working cattle. You know, there will be no palpating, there'll be no AIing, there'll be no tagging, you know, but I am so excited. Stacy, thank you for getting this together. And thank you for being a longtime listener and a friend from my hometown of Sulphur Springs. And Scott, it's so good to finally meet you in person. And I'm just, I thank y'all for coming on the Jason Wright show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for yeah. the opportunity. Thank you. All right. Well, so here's what I wanted to talk about with you guys. So 
in the world that I'm in these days, which has a lot to do with health and wellness and ancestral living and eating and all this, we hear about Butcher Box and we're Four Sigmatic and all these different companies. And you've got advocates like the Liver King that's out there talking about eating um, organ meats and, and all these different things. And I was like, you know what? It would be really cool if I actually, since I talk about nutrition and health and wellness and all that, why don't we talk to some folks that actually bring the protein into the world? I mean, literally, you know, sometimes with your own hands having to bring this protein into the world and just talk about something that, like I told you, Stacy, everybody loves a cowboy. I mean, bottom line, cowboy, cowgirl, you know, I mean, I couldn't help but think of the uh, line from one of my favorite movies of all time, Urban Cowboy, when Sissy walks up to Bud Gillies for the first time and she says, you a real cowboy? And cool thing is, Stacey, you got you a real cowboy. You married a real cowboy. If I just wish I had a Yellowstone cowboy. That, oh. like, I wish he was like John Dutton and he owned the Yellowstone Ranch. But that's not exactly where we are in era Texas. Our experience is a little different. Um, but definitely the, the farming, we do a lot of farming. The farming and ranching lifestyle is definitely a lifestyle. It's not something that Scott does just part time. It's something that he lives every day. Well, and that's the cool thing about it. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you guys on here is it's one of those professions that I think what most people know about Texas, ranching, cattle, they know Longhorns, which I know you guys know something about. I want to talk about that. They they watch uh, shows like Yellowstone and they see that. But how many people really understand what the operation is like, what the life is like. So Scott, let's start, you're, you're four generations deep into this, which again is something that is kind of the way it is in ranching. So take us back to where it all started four generations ago with you guys. Well, like, so, so, um, so my grandfather, he, he started out, you know, they, uh, his family's from Wisconsin and, and they moved down here and they, they've been dairying, they dairied, uh, you know, dairy his whole life. And then, uh, uh, you know, eventually Darian got hard, which Darian's, Darian's always been hard, mm -hmm. but, uh, so they got out of the dairy business and then my grandpa decided just to, to run cattle in the farm. And so, uh, my dad and my uncle and several of my uncles have, uh, have continued in that. And then, um, you know, I worked for my dad and my uncle, uh, all through high school and everything. And then I wanted to go to college and, and uh, get a four-year break before I came back. And, and so I, when I came back, I continued working for them and slowly started to lease some of my own ground and, and just, you know, just piece by piece, you know, they, they were good enough to let me whenever I work for them. But then, you know, if I had stuff that I needed to do that day, I'd, I'd go work for myself. And slowly I got to where, you know, I was busy enough that, that I couldn't work for them anymore. And, and they were good to help me out with that. So, from Wisconsin to Texas, did you, did you know, do you know a lot of the stories to figure to, you know, how did that happen and why? I mean, I know personally, and I want you to tell the story that most people don't know, but Stacy and I, where we grew up, we were around, I think there were Stacy, when you and I were in school, I think there were maybe 500 plus dairies in Hopkins County. It used to be the dairy capital of Texas, right? It's the home of the Southwest Dairy Museum. Now there may be just a little over a hundred. I mean, it's just dairying is a tough, tough business. So, why Texas and how did that how did that happen? Do you know the stories back there? I, I really don't know, but I do know a lot of the families uh, moved down together. So a lot of the people from around Munster, Lindsay, and Gainesville, they all kind of moved down here together. And you know, I, I guess there was there was a good 
fertile land to, to be bought and, and, uh, and it was available. And I, I know a lot of families came down uh, and, and that's how they all, all settled in this area. And, and just like you said, the same way here, I remember seeing dairies everywhere. And now maybe there's 20 in Cook County that I know of. I, I don't know, maybe not even 20 in Cook County. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now Stacy, tell me what the typical day on a ranch looks like. Well, so what you have to know about Scott, Jason, he's a lot like you, he's a hustler. And I think as you look at what farming used to be versus what it is now, it is a game of numbers. It's a game of margins. And I feel like those families who have been successful have either inherited like generational land. And so, you know, they keep that going. In Scott's case, Again, it's not the Yellowstone. And so he's really putting together, you know, land that we own, but then additional leases and stuff like maybe your family leases out land. The, the land we own only only makes up 4% of the of the land we operate on. Really? Every, everything else is leased land. Okay. And so it's a lot of, he does a lot of relationship building. He does a lot of fence fixing, those sorts of things. And so I would say for Scott, what I see in the morning, he has a staff of folks who help him. And they get up, they do the the chores of feeding the cattle um, around our house because we have a pasture to plate program that we'll chat with you about. And those cattle are on corn, so they have to be fed every day. Um, If there are any cows that have any kind of issue, typically they're here at our house and they check those. And then like little minions, they spread out to go conquer the world. And so they're either feeding cattle or depending on the time of the year, they're planting crops, they're harvesting crops. I mean, it really is every day is new, which I think the people that farm and ranch, that's probably one of the things that they really enjoy because no two days are the same. Yeah. For me, that would be very difficult. I very much like a routine, yeah. um, but it's very difficult. I feel like for Scott to put a to-do list together because there are all these like really big items that have to be done. And any of those could be a full-time gig. And what are you raising there? What, what are y'all raising on your, on your ranch primarily? So, so obviously beef, and then we, we raise corn, milo, wheat, sesame, um, you know, some years, some years more, more, uh, corn than others. Some years, you know, less corn, uh, uh, some years we don't raise any milo, but, but basically those four crops there. Now, and then and go ahead. I was going to ask you as far as what, what breed of cattle and why, because I know that a lot ranchers are very, you know, like if they're black Angus, you know, that then that's everything else is just subpar. And then you got the registered beef master, which, you know, Nolan Ryan kind of made popular back in the day. I mean, I'm just, I'm talking like I know what the heck I'm talking about, but these are just what little bits and pieces I, I remember. So what did you have a particular breed that you focus on? And if so, what is it? So, so we raise registered Angus okay. and then we've also got, got our commercial Angus okay. that go into beef production. We raise our registered Angus for, you know, to sell as seed stock, you know, we sell bulls and then also, uh, you know, we, we will cross our, we'll cross our Angus, our commercial Angus, you know, uh, we, we have a little, there's a little Hereford in some of the cattle, a little bit of Brangus for longevity. And, and so just predominantly commercial Angus, heavy influence, I'd say 80% Angus, you know, that way they feed out uh, well, they marble well, and um, okay, now we've stuck by, and, and black Angus. And We're, then we have Longhorns, you yeah. cannot forget. <laughs> oh yeah, no, yeah, ab- absolutely. And now going back to a little bit more of the, and I want to talk about the Longhorns because that's just, again, that's one of the things cool about talking to you guys. There's people hearing from you guys that have never heard about 
yeah, I know Longhorns. We the state university's name, but what is a Longhorn? Does is there really such? I mean, somebody in New York's probably listening to this. They're gonna go, wait a minute, that's a real thing. I thought they, they just, exist. Yeah, they actually exist. Um, so Scott, whenever you're raising an Angus, why did you choose that? And tell people what that means about marbling well. I think those of us who are diehard carnivores, I know I'm looking for for good for good marble, but what does that mean? And what makes an Angus versus, I guess, a Brahma or, you know, whatever, marble better than another? Or, or we can talk about Wagyu and some of that stuff or Kobe, whatever. Gotcha. Well, so the marbling is is the fat deposits in the the muscle. And so, um, you know, Angus, they marble really well uh, when, when fed, uh, you know, when fed the last 120, 150 days. Um, and then... So, so I, I got into Angus obviously because that's what my dad and my uncle raised, and and uh, we've just kind of continued that tradition. But uh, and one thing also that to consider is temperament. Angus cattle are, are easy to work with. You know, if you go go out there, you know, get your arm broke, leg broke, it, you know, it's it's not worth it. You know, you've got some other cattle. I, I love Brangus cattle. I, I, I like like uh, Brahmin cattle, but but they are a little more high spirited and a little bit harder to work. And so, you know, there's also that aspect along with uh, you'll get better gains. You know, there's a lot of buyers looking for the Angus cattle. You know, if, if you can you can show them, a, you know, maybe not a straight Angus, but but an, an Angus, a heavily influenced Angus calf, you know, uh, they're obviously going to want to buy those because they, they feed out better. They uh, their day their daily gains in the feed yard are better. And then which and, you know, they yield better. And obviously the better marbling, which the customer sees in the end. What is the difference between like, from your standpoint, are you raising those? If I go into a supermarket or if I'm ordering, uh, are you prime certified? What does that mean? Okay. So, so certified Angus beef, yeah, it has to meet certain criteria. And I would say probably at at least 90% of my animals would, would go sell certified. You know, it has to do with hide has to do with uh, the, the yielding and the grading system. And so uh, the, the way that they get certified is, is obviously at the packers. The, is that's, that's when they make certification. And so um, when I take cattle, when I go through conventional streams, you know, I don't know exactly where my beef goes, you know, whether it's going certified Angus, uh, they, don't, they don't reveal that information. Okay. Um, now, if you sell, there's a much more complicated way of selling. You can sell on the grid, and then you do know how your cattle are grading, but you take take a lot of risk by selling on the grid. What does that mean, yeah. Scott? And why would you so, do that? Jason, I have to tell you. So the things that Scott is talking about right now, uh-huh. you know, I did not come from a farming and ranching family. Yeah. And so through our social media, one of the things that we've talked about is we've done Hey Scott videos. Uh-huh. And the whole point of those has been, Hey Scott, what are you doing? Because as a non-farmer rancher person, I want to know why are you doing that way or what what does it mean? And so when Scott is talking about like uh, terminal markets and those sorts of things for people who don't farm and ranch, maybe we should talk about like there are like four different classes, sections uh, sections in the cattle market. And so each of those um, sections, typically there uh, people participate in those sections, right? In different ways. Okay. You're talking about the cow calf, yes. stalker, mm-hmm. feedlot, processing, you know, through through those four 
Okay. And you, you were asking me about what is selling on the grid. Yeah. And okay. So when you, when you sell, so when you sell directly to a packer, if you want to sell on the grid, you can sell them as live cattle, which they tell you, we're going to pay you so much per pound uh, for a live animal weight. And that, and you'll get paid that when they come out of the feed yard, go to the processor, they pay you so much per pound um, for your animal. Okay. Well, if, if you, if you have better cattle and you want to, um, and you want to, um, uh, like maximize ma- your profit. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. You want to capture the profit. Say, I, I, I believe I've got superior genetics and, and I want to capture that profit. So what I do is I'd sell on the grid and by selling on the grid means you don't get paid until after your cattle are harvested. And when they grade them, if your cattle are grading superior, if they're grading better than, I don't know exactly what the number is, but but if they're grading better than 50 or 60% of average, then you'll get a premium for that. And so you're taking a risk because the risk is you sell your cattle and some of them don't grade, uh, some of them grade below. And then whenever they grade below, uh, like an average or below 60%, whatever it is, I'm not hundred percent sure on that, but whenever they grade below that, or if your cattle are too big, then they, then they, um, uh, th- there's a penalty. And so you can really lose money that way. <laughs> so okay. it's, it's a gamble. Okay. Okay. Well, and then, okay, Stacy, tell me about longhorns. What are they good for? Who's buying longhorns? I think I know who's buying longhorns, but uh, you know, it's usually people that, have, well, you just tell me who's buying longhorns. So I think it depends on what they're doing. Um, There is a large segment in the Longhorn community who market their cattle as um, lean beef. Um, Typically, they're doing like grass-fed animals only. So they're taking them from the pasture to the packer and then selling that beef direct to consumer. That is not something we do. We have corn-finished Angus beef that we sell by the half. Mm -hmm. We are not selling individual cuts and we're not selling longhorns. So we sell our animals as live animals to people that want them for their pasture. Now, there are a lot of people, Jason, and we market a lot to these that are selling them for their breeding program. So they're wanting to add, you know, um, some of our cattle to their herd because, you know, we work really hard to have improved genetics in our herd. The market values longhorns. Um, And so tip to tip measurements are something that they talk a lot in the industry about where you're getting the animals in, you know, at specific times of the year. Um, They have competitions in the longhorn world and there are um, there's higher value based on the amount of horn they have. So we sell to breeders. We also sell to people just like you who have, you know, a piece of property and they want it to be really pretty. Um, the Texas Longhorn completely captures the vision of the West, you know, um, lots of stories about bringing the, about bringing Longhorns across the prairie and those sorts of things. And so it's a way for people to have Texas history in their yard. Um, there are a lot of UT fans, a lot of UT fans, but not always. Um, but they definitely are prettier than, than a lot of other breeds. They're more unique and, um, they're a lot of fun to own. Yeah, so that's, I didn't even know. So people do butcher and eat longhorns. I always thought they were basically just for novelty, for the kind of that either, like, I mean, Jim and I just bought a little uh, little track of land, and she's already told me that, you know, we need to talk to you, get to the shoemakers about uh, yeah. buying some, buying a couple longhorns. And so from what I understand, the, the nutritional content on a Texas longhorn is very similar to chicken. 
Really? And so you're getting you're getting high protein and very low fat. Okay. Um, the, the Longhorn industry has worked to promote that. Um, but but again, that's not something that I prefer corn finished beef. Um, and so that's I've never eaten a longhorn. Yeah. I I I would she couldn't eat a longhorn. They're all names. It. They all have names. <laughs> They're all names. So not possible. That's not possible. <laughs> all right. So let's okay. So it's fun. It's funny you keep saying corn finish because one of the things I just heard recently about the difference in the American food market versus like the European food market. So over in in, in America, we we all it's all you know, you hear grass fed, organic and all that in Europe, there really is no classification because everything's pretty much just one or the, that's just what it is. But here we do have so much uh, that goes into our foods and, and having to separate out what's natural and what's not. So tell me the biggest difference between grass finished and corn finished. And why has that become such a, a high deal? Now, listen, I've got an audience that they're all into nutrition and health and wellness. So I guarantee you this audience is going to gasp at hearing corn finished, but yet they may have never really heard and they may have, but I don't want to assume anything like me. I've never really heard anyone explain the real difference between a corn finish and a grass finished um, uh, cow and what that does to the, the complexity of the, the taste and, and all that. So can y'all kind of help me out on that? Yeah, so so grass fed obviously is supposed to supposed to not be fed any grain to 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 finish it out, you know, prior to to processing, and and depending on the type of year, depending on what type of grass they're they're eating, um, all that can affect flavor. And so with grass fed, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of variables that go into to to creating a steak because it's it's hard to produce the same uh, the same taste, uh, every time. And it, obviously if you have less rain, you, you know, you're, you're going to have to move your market animals sooner or, uh, you know, your market animals, your animals are not going to be, uh, you're, they're not going to get as big as quickly as they, as they are with grain. And so what I've found, we tried selling grass fed beef and we, and we did okay with it, but what I found, I can produce a better tasting, more consistent, product with grain fit uh, with grain and because i can get these cattle to they gain better they they certainly marble better and and i and i believe it you know in my opinion it's got a lot better taste um the grass the grass-fed beef i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it it, it probably is a little bit leaner it's it's going to be tougher you know tougher to cut you know your steaks are going to be tougher and more chewy but uh um and as far as health health goes i think everything in moderation, you know, that you, you can't just eat all of one thing and be like, Oh yeah, this is healthy. This is the way it's going to be. Um, so I'm not a nutritionist, uh, and I don't pretend to be one, but, but there's a, a lot of, there's a lot of work done on, um, you know, uh, you know, some people say that grain feds, not, not healthy. Well, I don't, I don't really believe that I've seen a lot of, a lot of data that su- suggests otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would say, Jason, you know, Scott has done, and a lot of cattlemen have done a lot of work using artificial insemination, um, studying genetics on their cattle, tenderness, marbling, a lot of the qualities that we as consumers look for, those things are genetic. And so that is why, like, I feel like Scott, one of the, one of the reasons that our pasture to plate program has been successful is that those customers are getting the benefit of that genetic work that's been done 
you know, for decades now, trying to create the perfect animal that's not only efficient, like it grows efficiently, it, it grows, you know, to a certain size by a certain age, but it also converts feed efficiently and um, has those, those carcass qualities that, um, that we're all looking for as consumers. Yeah, you just answered my next question because that was one of the things I was wondering is like, okay, how much does the genetics go into play? And, and then just kind of either one of you talk to me about like whenever you're tr- – as a rancher, I mean, look, if if there was just one model, everybody would be doing the same thing. But I got to believe that y'all have a shoemaker uh, cattle playbook that says it's genetics, it's what we feed them, it's when we feed them, it's how much we feed them. How much of that is an art to really, and and how are you constantly tweaking to make sure that um, you have like like when something if somebody is especially and I want you can just go right into Stacy the pasture to plate program if somebody's buying a shoemaker cattle uh, side of beef and they end up with a steak on their plate. What are the things that you're doing to make sure that that is as tender? It is has that perfect marble. How much artistry goes into that, and or is it a playbook that's just developed over all these four generations? You're like, hey, just don't screw this up. This is what you do to get a good rib eye on the plate. Well, so we've never, you know, prior to maybe the last uh, three years, we've never we've never sold direct to consumer. We always did the conventional. You know, we'd take our cattle. Uh, you know, we'd take our cattle to sale barn when they got up, you know, so we, we were cow calf operators and we would retain ownership, put them through the stalker phase, which means, you know, at 500 pounds, you grow them up to 800 pounds. So we typically do that. And then we would just take them to the commercial sale barns and, and sell truckloads of cattle that way. And so we never marketed uh, uh, beef directly to the consumer until the past three years or so. And so, you know, we've had to learn a lot, you know, um, my dad and my uncle, they, they know a lot more about feeding cattle than I. And my dad was involved in this, uh, uh, in this steer feeding competition, um, uh, with my sister in, in, um, uh, in 4-H and FFA. And so, you know, I watched them feed cattle out, uh, for her competition steers and, and kind of learned that way. And, and then, you know, here recently, like I said, in the last three years, then, I was like, you know, what if I could start doing that and selling direct to consumer? Because uh, prior to the pandemic, I mean, prices just tanked. I mean, cattle prices just tanked. I was like, we've got to figure out a way to make, you know, to make this make money. And I was like, it's got to, you know, people are looking, they, they want to know where their beef's coming from. They want good beef and we have good genetics, but we weren't, you know, realizing the, the, the profit from that, from the better genetics. And so just over time, over the past three years, we've, we've been tweaking, you know, how we feed them, you know, and it takes a lot, you know, first thing we do is animal selection. I, I select, you know, I'll go out in the pasture and, you know, I might have a hundred, hundred head of steers to sort through and, and I'll sort the five that I believe, you know, are the best and, and close to the right size at, at, at that time. Cause I want them to finish out at about 1300 pounds. Okay. And, you know, it produces a good size ribeye, you know, your T-bones are a good size, you, you know, the size of your steaks and everything are just right. Okay. And Stacy, tell me about y'all's pasture to plate program, how that works. I mean, I didn't realize that it, it evolved that quickly. And that opens up a whole bunch of questions I have just about the industry as a whole, because I've seen some of the changes happening, this whole direct to consumer 
And I can see that I can see why this would have made a lot of sense, Scott. So, Stacy, how does y'all's program work? And so, everybody, listen up if you want to know how to get, you know, a shoemaker ribeye on your plate directly from the source. How does that work? Well, so, and I would say, kind of as a side note for that, you know, ag- people in agriculture many times are price takers. You you take your product to market, and the market is deciding, yeah. like they're telling you what they'll give you for Just that. A commodity, and so yeah. this. This was our, yeah. So this was our goal in trying to be a price setter. Yep. And so I think it's been very successful because people can see Scott, they mm-hmm. can see his guys working and see like, you know, these animals are a certain size, they're a certain age. We're not buying cattle at the, you know, at the local sale barn and then, you know, putting them on grain. These are home race animals. And so we market um, beef halves. So people will watch on our Facebook um, we have Shoemaker Beef online, and um, they will buy a half. Usually, like right now, we're selling for May of, of this year. They will pay Scott half of the, the price of the half. And then right before the animal is processed, they pay the other half. They also pay the uh, processor directly. So the guys deliver it. Scott lets people know, hey, you know, we're taking your animal to the processor. You need to contact them, you know, within, you know, a couple weeks. The animal um, is processed, the beef hangs for 10 to 14 days, and then it's cut based on what the, the consumer suggests. Some people want organ meat, so they let Scott know that. Um, some people want soup bones, they want dog bones, you know, they can do all those things. You just have to let the processor know that ahead of time. Um, and then you can tell them how thick or thin you want your scut- your steaks cut, if you want ribs. How, I mean, it's whatever that it's just like you raising the animal at your home see you just didn't have to do that i've got to think in this day and age that that's huge that you guys are on you are on to it because here's another thing too that now to the general listener i'm going to show some of my legislative um chops here m cool which they probably have no idea what it what it means and they probably shouldn't is you know mandatory country origin of was it mandatory country of origin label right mm-hmm. which which went away so now and you guys stop me if, if i've got this wrong so now if i go to brookshire's here in tyler and i buy a steak it may have come from mexico it may have come from texas but i really don't know because no longer is there a demand but if i'm buying a shoemaker cattle steak or i do a deal with you guys i know it was raised in the usa it was raised in texas and i can actually look at scott and stacy and know this is the genetic line that my beef comes from this is how they feed it so you just know more about what you're actually getting from your protein did i describe that right Yes. Yep. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And I got to think that that's what more people are wanting now. Cause even if, and like what I've seen going back to that whole corn fed versus grass fed, you've got people that are like, Oh no, it's gotta be grass fed. But if it's anything like, and again, you guys correct me if I'm wrong. If it's anything like the whole organic labeling or cage free eggs, a lot of times, yeah, it may read organic or cage-free, but really they're doing just the bare minimum. So you don't know where they are cutting the, the corners, especially if they're mass selling that organic or cage-free versus more of a, for lack of a better word, I, I would say you guys more of a boutique ranch experience to get your beef that there could be higher quality in your product. It's just finished different. Again, did I, do I am I thinking about it right? No, yeah, you're exactly, exactly. Because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of marketing, uh, I, guess, I guess you could say kind of tricks, you know, yep. yeah, they're just, you know, they're, they're shaving, they're just barely, 
meeting the requirements to, to go in the grass fed label or, or whatever. Well, um, and I would say all beef is they're on grass. Like even our animals that are corn finished, they're still in a grass pasture. They're mm-hmm. not in a dry lot. Yeah, Those they, animals they only have eat, been raised on grass. Right. They only eat a, 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 uh, a full diet of corn uh, the last 120 days. Got it. Got it. And so it's not like they're on, on feed there, you know, from, from day one, you know, they're, they're, and, and they, you know, as they're eating corn, I've, I've got, they, there's grass out there for them to eat too, if they, if they prefer the grass, but they don't, they prefer the corn. All right. So now you mentioned something earlier and it's going to sound weird, but I think this is going to be a big market for you guys. If you haven't done it yet. And Scott, we may need to talk offline because I've got some ideas. <laughs> um, your organ meats. I know some, some people, will actually ask for that. But I went looking for some raw liver the other day at Brookshire's, and all I could find was frozen, which surprised me. Um, you know, I, now I guarantee you, Stacey, if I was in Sulphur Springs and went to the Brookshire's, I could probably find me some uh, some raw liver. But um, but I couldn't find any. So, are you, and okay, again, going back to this whole ancestral eating and everything, organ meats are becoming very popular in the the nutrition world there's a guy uh, i may have mentioned him earlier his name's liver king or that's what he goes by his name's actually brian johnson i think he's somewhere in willis texas uh kind of around conroe houston area and the guy's just blowing up and he has a supplement company that is um that is organ meat capsules powdered organ meats and then he's also he, he promotes the eating of organ meats have y'all noticed recently people asking more for organ meats at all? And if you haven't, then we might need to talk because I guarantee you there's a market for it. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I've noticed more. Uh, I, that's hard to say. I, we're about 50, 50 people who buy, uh, you know, half, you know, sides of beef, you know, about 50% of them want all of them and 50% of them, you know, they, a lot of people do want the liver, Okay, but, uh, but I would say, you know, it's about 50, 50 of people that do want organs and 50, you know, don't want organs. Well, and okay. So if you look at who buys our beef or not just our beef from their local rancher, I think that there are two reasons that they do that. Number one, people want to know where their food comes from. Okay. You you've mentioned labeling can be very difficult. And so I think part of it is you just want to know you're, you're feeding your family a quality product, but number two, you know, cost is a thing. When, when you buy a beef from a rancher like us, when you do the math, you're paying like how much is it? Six right now, it's six fifty a pound. Is, is what and that's costs. including that's processing. And, I mean, and that's wow. first. That includes your steaks, your ribs, you know, your whatever, and uh, your premium cuts as well as you know hamburger meat and those sorts of things. And so, there are some people that buy from a ranch not because of health issues, but because it's economically a smart thing for their family to do if they have a place like a, a freezer. The uh, biggest thing is storage. In. Yeah. Biggest thing is storage. If yeah. they've got a freezer, it it makes sense because six fifty a pound, you're going to pay that in the grocery store. You know, especially if you want to buy steaks and oh, all the insects, it's going to cost you way more. Oh, right now, man, I'm think I'm paying for a uh, for, just for certified. I want to say the last time I bought, well, I just bought some uh, ribeye satay that was, I think it wasn't prime. I think it was just certified. It wasn't wagyu or anything like that. And it was nineteen dollars a pound. And that was for satay. That wasn't even a full ribeye. You know, I mean, it's it. The prices right now are pretty crazy. And then if you get up into uh, grass fed or wagyu or anything like that, then oh, good grief! It's a you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of gotten out of hand. Yep. So okay. And I would just say that Jason, just just so you know, the the farmers and ranchers they are not seeing that 
Like <laughs> they're not selling their animals at market for that. I know. I know. And all right. So if I wanted to, you know, this audience, if they wanted to get in touch with you guys, I mean, how do I go about and how much is it? How big of a freezer do I have to have? Is there a minimum? Am I buying a whole side of beef? How many pounds is that? How many steaks am I going to get? You know, let's face it. This audience is, I would think I'm just the, I'm Joe Blow consumer. If I'm going to do a deal, if I'm going to go buy that much beef, I want to know how many ribeyes, how many strips, how many fillets, and how much hamburger meat. Beyond that, I'm pro- or may- maybe sirloin, but really those are my main ones. So can you give an idea of kind of what the consumer would be getting on that deal? Well, that, that is a hard question because there's so many ways to cut a beef. If you want your steaks an inch thick, if you want them two inches thick, Right there, you, you've changed about, you know, you've you've cut your amount of steaks in half if you go with a two inch thick steak. Sure. And so that, you know, that's I always defer to the processor on, on that question. But you're going to get 250 pounds. I can tell you, you're going to get 250 pounds of meat. Wow. You know, and um, and that that changes a little bit due to the size of the animal. We have a pretty good idea when we start feeding them what size they're going to be. And so we'll we'll tell you. But on average. Uh, uh, our buyers are getting 250 pounds of meat, which takes a uh, nine cubic foot of, of freezer space. Okay. And I'm, I'm terrible, Scott. Is, is that just like a big deep freeze? So, so yeah, yeah. You know, you those huge, uh, the, the big chest type deep yep. freezers. Yep. Those are typically about 16. Cubic okay. Foot. Okay. So, so you can hold a whole animal in one of those pretty easy. Okay. All right. And then how long is that going to last me? Is that going to, if I buy, do most of your customers buy one 250 pound uh, order for seat per season per year or a couple times a year kind of what are you saying so I've, I've had i've had a bunch of reorders uh within a year okay. uh it, it all depends you know some of them share it with their family they get it and they they give it as as gifts you know or something yeah. they, they give out a bunch of steaks as gifts to their family and those people will reorder pretty quick because because they've they've given you know they got big families and they've, they've dispersed it through their whole family and so they'll reorder pretty quick i had one customer reorder within six months i was like wow that's he's like really into fitness and he eats like a carnivore diet yep. and so he actually has cattle of his own but was really impressed with the quality of our animals and so uh until his uh were performing in the feed yard he was buying from us and so that was that was really great well and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to talk stacy because is you guys i mean what you're producing this audience the questions i get the most right now are about Paleo, when it comes to nutrition, paleo, keto is huge. Carnivore, uh, especially when you had like, uh, I guess, uh, Jordan and Michaela Peterson, which blew up. And, you know, they they both had some sort of a chronic degenerative disease or something that they went on all beef diets. I mean, that's all they ate. And so it's just become more and more prevalent that animal protein, and there's obviously, there's there's debate in it. I've had people on this show that are diehard uh, plant-based protein only but by and large, for regenerative health, it, animal protein, even if it's not 250 pounds every six months or a year, you're going you're gonna to need some animal protein to really have that regenerative effect on your body. And so I got to think, again, that although this business model may have started three years ago for you guys, it, I, I think you're on to something because I know as a consumer, I mean, I think I told you, Stacy, my dad and I were just talking here recently because of the the prices at the market where we don't know where the protein's coming from. 
as well as wanting to support local, support Texas, and and have at least some idea of the quality of the the, the beef. Um, that's what he and I are probably going to do. We're probably going to split something, and it'll probably be from Shoemaker Cattle that whenever we buy some beef um, here recently. And I think that's that's going to be a growing trend. I mean, am I right on that? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> right. we, 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 you know, we definitely noticed it during the pandemic when people were like, man, we, we'd like to have a good steady supply of meat, you know? Uh, so, so a lot of people were buying freezers and, and decided to buy half beef and, 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 you know, I can't see a, you know, if, if I wasn't raising it myself, you know, if I was on the other end, if I was a consumer, it all, to me, it only makes sense. Like uh, the price price point, is is good uh you know the quality is good and you know that way you know you've got a steady supply of meat you don't have to worry about if the grocery store is going to run out or, or you know what you're looking for okay all right so i guess one of the next things i want to ask is what is happening all right i've heard wind of this and i may have talked to you about this stacy when we visited the other day is that essentially this is kind of a model that's going to have it. It seems like it's what the consumer wants. And, but y'all's industry is kind of pushing you toward that as well. Right. Because there's a, the, the packers are kind of doing like they used to do in the dairy business. Everything's consolidating to a degree where the cattle business as being an independent rancher, that's changing a lot from what I'm seeing. And it seems like you guys have figured out a model to make it work going into the future. So it can be a fifth and sixth generation going forward. What are some of the biggest challenges that you guys have right now in American agriculture? Well, yeah, the consolidation of the Packers is, is a huge thing. Uh, they just have so much control over, <laughs> over pricing um, because there's only four, you know, four main companies uh, control like 80% of, of the meat that's processed here in the United States. And, you know, they, they use that, they use uh, their size as leverage for pricing. And, and so in, in commercial agriculture, we are price takers. And that's, you know, when you can't, you, there's no way to dictate your price and you're depending on the weather, you know, <laughs> it, it makes it tough to, to guarantee whether you're going to make, you know, make a profit that year or not. Right. And so that's, that's when we sat down, we're like, you know, uh, we need to be price dictators, not, not price takers as much as we can, you know, to, to an extent. And so, uh, lucky, luckily for us, you know, we were large enough on, on a commercial scale that we could, um, that we've got enough cattle to always, you know, to supply our shoemaker beef with a steady stream of cattle. And we can, we can always have beef ready for consumers. Yeah. And, uh, and that's also why I raised registered Angus too, uh, to be a seed stock producer, you know, instead of just taking them to the sale barn and, and selling them, you know, I'm selling bulls and, um, you know, I get to dictate their price as to, you know, what I think their quality is. You think your kiddos are going to be in the ranching business? <laughs> I hope so, but I, I don't know, you know, if, if they want to, that'd be great. But if not, you know, uh, uh, I certainly understand. There's some times where I'm like, why am I doing this? It's a lot of work for, for, for not enough pay. Well, and you know, Jason, kind of to piggyback on that, because, you know, I touched on that I had not been raised in an agriculture family. I am amazed. And I think that people not in the agriculture world would be amazed at the cost of inputs mm -hmm. that uh, producers have. And so you are investing thousands of dollars into crops before it's ever rained. You know, you're, you're definitely, um, there's a lot of trust there. I, I, I kind of feel like 
farmers and ranchers are probably all fun to go to Las Vegas with because they're used to taking those risks every, I mean, Scott, like you take him to Las Vegas and he's a good time. Um, <laughs> but I think that there's something to be said about the amount of trust or the amount of risk that these producers are willing to take. To me, I see that as a huge problem. Um, it's a concern, I guess. People should should know that farmers and ranchers are really risk a lot. Risk a lot. But yeah, because you've got to you've got to have a good good bank to 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 work with. I mean, everybody every farmer and rancher needs a needs a good banker because it it takes a lot of operating capital, you know. To, and and then you know you hit bad weather or uh, you know whenever like last year whenever the the freeze in February came. And, you know, cattle still had to eat. In fact, they had to eat more to, to stay warm. And so you can't just shut the faucet off whenever you, you know, whenever you're spending money, you can't, you can't just stop all of a sudden. Yeah. And so you, you need a good bank and, and uh, it, it takes a lot of operating capital. And so I would say I see that as something that producers will more and more um, have to address because of supply chain issues, because of shortages, because of monopolies in, in certain parts of the, the production stream. Um, and I mean, quite frankly, the cost of land. I mean, oh, any of your listeners will know they look at what they're paying now. I mean, inflation is part of that. But um, the cost of land is, is a huge part of the cost of production overall. And you've got to have availability. If, if you don't have access to that, it makes it very difficult to continue, you know, farming and ranching. Well, and that's one of the things why it's it's a double-edged sword that all of a sudden Texas has become so popular for people to call home. I mean, it's uh, because, yeah, there and you're seeing the rise in solar farms. I think a lot of what they've dealt with up in the uh, Midwest with, you know, burning corn for biofuels and that sort of thing, we're going to start seeing more and more with, you know, wind farms, solar farms, and getting people to do things other than grow crops raise cattle with their land and, or people just coming with these huge pocketbooks. They're like, I, I'll, I'll pay you 10 grand or your 10, yeah, 10,000 an acre for 500 acres. And I'm not going to do anything. I don't even, I'm so rich. I don't even need the ag exemption, you know, mm -hmm. or it's, so it's like, man, that does put it, put a, put a real squeeze on things. I want to go back to just from the, the entrepreneurial side of me and just to kind of my thought, I, having grown up around folks in agriculture and talking about, um, you know, Scott being a gambler, the cool thing about folks that come up in ag is they are the risk takers, but usually whenever you look at their hands, they're like leather. And it doesn't really matter what the weather does, what the market does. They're folks that will, they'll take the risks, but then when the risk doesn't pay off, they will still work their asses off to make sure their family's fed, the roof's over their head, and it's not leaking. And that's just something that is so, that makes, you know, when you think of the, the entrepreneur of today, it's all about a tech entrepreneur or something like that. But the, the, the American farmer, rancher, I don't care if it's a dairyman, whatever, just a different breed, just, just somebody that just knows how to squeeze a dollar out of a nickel, you know, better than anybody. And it's so kudos to you guys. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. The thing about that I know about ag families is it is just that it is a family affair. There's no, no one gets to, no one gets to stand on the sidelines. Am I right? 
Well, for sure, for sure. We'll, we'll be going somewhere. I'm like, well, we got to stop over here and check these these cattle real quick, or, or we'll be making a trip somewhere. I'm like, hey, while we're down in, down in Dallas, I got to pick up a part while we're down here. Yeah. <laughs> so there's always something. Stacy's like, ah, can we not go somewhere without you working? <laughs> Goes with you everywhere you go. Well, okay. Have we covered, I mean, look, I, I try to ask the best questions I can, but here's what I want. Y'all took the time to be on the show with me and, and introduce this audience to the whole idea of pasture to plate. I hope that someone from the Jason Wright audience you know, reaches out to you guys. How can people find you, reach you? And then, Stacy, if there's anything that you wanted me to ask that I didn't, that this audience can benefit from as it comes to, as it regards shoemaker, cattle, or anything else, what have we missed? How can they reach you and how can they order 250 pounds of beef from you? Well, so, you know, Facebook, Instagram, we love the TikTok, Jason. <laughs> we love the TikTok. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, we're all over social media at Shoemaker Beef, at Shoemaker Cattle. You can see our Hayscott videos there. Those are really fun. We try to show people just what agriculture really looks like. Sometimes that's a lot of fun. Sometimes it's kind of gross because they're doing some medical procedure or something that I don't know, but you can find us on Instagram, Shoemaker Cattle. And it's spelled Schumacher, not, not, you know, it's S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R. So that might confuse people. A little and so bit. that's a great place to get us. We just appreciate the opportunity. You know, we're certainly one ag family of many working really hard to feed the world. And so there are a lot of, you know, farmers and ranchers out there doing similar things. Um, we have kind of taken it upon myself. So Jason, you know, my mom was a teacher mm -hmm. and she was very disappointed that I did not want to be an educator. And so fast forward several years, and maybe this is, this is my ode to my mom, um, trying to educate people about where their food comes from. It's not always pretty. It's a lot of really hard work. And so just, you know, if you, uh, if you know a rancher, if you know a farmer, you know, just thank them for their hard work because it it definitely is a lifestyle. It's a great way to live, but it's kind of hard sometimes. And um, so they can find us on Instagram. Thank a farmer. How's that? Awesome. I love it. Well, let's uh, and maybe we'll do something with this audience. They can get a uh, I don't know, maybe 50 cents off a, uh, a ribeye or something. I want to figure I want to point some people y'all's direction and then. Like I said, I got to talk to Frank about maybe us ordering a side of beef from y'all for the uh, for this year. So whatever we can do to support y'all, the Jason Wright Show wants to do that. I'm gonna y'all sit tight. I'll set. I'll come back and say goodbye to y'all properly. I'm gonna change the view real quick here so I can say goodbye to people on the YouTube's. So there you go, folks. You just heard from a real cowboy and a real cowgirl. Even though Stacy didn't grow up a cowgirl, she's one now. She she grew up and married her a cowboy, and that's where <laughs> that's where your protein comes from. Hey, check them out, Shoemaker Cattle. It's spelled Shoemaker, as Scott said, but it's Shoemaker. So check them out, and please click subscribe, click like, leave some comments in the uh, comment section so we can get the algorithms going and. Thank you so much for tuning into the Jason Wright Show. If you're listening on the podcast, thank you so much. Be sure to leave a five-star iTunes rating. That really helps us in the rankings. And with that, to the shoemakers, thank you guys so much. This has been a lot of fun. I'm out. Well, that does it for this episode of The Jason Wright Show. This has been a Texas Titans media production. Hey, if you would, go to Amazon.com and pre-order the Stone Chiseler now. Also, go to JasonWrightNow.com 
and subscribe to the Vitruvian Letter. Until we meet again, please endeavor to improve always in all ways, and I will do the same. I'm Jason, and I'm out.